The Afterword is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. That's W-O-R-D. I'm June Thomas, welcoming you to The Afterword, a Slate podcast in which I talk with the authors of new nonfiction books. My guest today is Tanner Colby, whose book, Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America, has just been published by Viking. Tanner, you've been a great guest on several of Dana Stevens' spoiler special movie podcasts, so I'm glad that you are here today to spoil a few of the plot twists in your own great book. I'm excited to be here, June. (laughs) Good. I'm glad to hear that. So, Tanner, I was very taken with your explanation of how you got the idea for this book. Uh, Tell us that story, won't you? I was sitting in my house watching MSNBC about 24 hours a day (laughs) because I was unemployed and I just uh, finished my last book or I just published my last book, The Chris Farley Show, A Biography in Three Acts, uh, my second biography (laughs) of a deceased overweight comedian. Having done John Belushi just before and only having John Candy left before I would be completely unemployed and unemployable. So I needed a new idea for a book. And I'd always wanted to write about politics and culture and history and sort of the intersection of those things. But I wasn't really, quote unquote, qualified to do that because my only qualification was to write about deceased overweight comedians. So about this time, while I was sitting around trying to think of a new book idea, I was the biggest Barack Obama cheerleader you can imagine. I mean, I was just glued to the TV, every primary victory, you know, just pumping money into his campaign and you know, glued to all the results. And I realized it literally just sort of came to me out of the blue that that here I was supporting America's first black president or potential president at that point, And yet I didn't know any black people like at all. Like I knew black people that I'd right. worked with or in passing or here and there. But like I'd, I'd never been inside a black person's house. No black person had ever been inside my house. Uh, none of my mentors in college, none of my superiors at work or, you know, any real close coworkers had been black. And I actually thought of the title of the book before I actually realized what the book was going to be. It just sort of popped into my head. Some of my best friends are black, the history of integration in America, because some of my best friends are black is, of course, what people say when they don't actually have any black friends. And so I thought, well, if we've had 40 years of affirmative action and school busing and fair housing and all these various programs that were supposed to, quote unquote, integrate the country, if they had worked, then I would know more black people than I do because I'm just sort of a typical middle-class American person. And so examining the reasons why my world had stayed lily white would be a pretty good way to survey where America went wrong in trying to fix the problems with Jim Crow. And that turned out to be very true. My life is a pretty typical example in terms of schools and workplace and church and neighborhoods of the ways in which America took a left turn after the end of Jim Crow. Well, and I did love the the way that you structured the book, those four focuses, because potentially it was a huge subject. You know, you could have been a Robert Caro-esque right. you know, endeavor, but, you know... You... <laughs> it, it was that for a while. It had to be winnowed down. Um, but the reason I picked those four is because they were all places 
roughly in what I call the public square, mm. in which you know everyone has some experience. You may not have gone to, like I did, a white flight high school in Birmingham, Alabama, where our official school flag was a Confederate flag. That's unique to my experience, but everyone has gone to school. Everyone's lived in a neighborhood. Everyone, well, before the 2008, most of us had jobs. And, you know, we all belong to something that you could call your church, whatever your social world is. So I didn't want to do like the music industry or sports or the military, all of which have been interesting areas of integration in the country. But, you know, I wanted to stick with things that everyone had access to. And also because I've lived in many different places, that allowed a broad geographical range, which I also wanted to look at north, south, midwest and different areas. And it's very personal. I mean, I think that's why it is successful book because it's you kind of being honest about things, which is right. the only way to talk about this subject. It is. And we we too often, especially when we're addressing uh, white people in terms of, of talking about race, uh, it becomes a lecture and it becomes, okay, you know, eat your vegetables because, you know, America uh, was uh, bad about race and now it's time to make up for it. Whereas I'm just sort of an everyman And by sort of putting my own hypocrisies and failings on the first page of the book, (laughs) I was able to say, all right, well, I don't know anything. Come along with me as I learn something. And I think that's a good sympathetic position for readers to to go along for the ride. Yeah, I agree. So you start with buzzing or with schools, which when it comes to integration, buzzing was the method, I guess, by which America decided to fix the schools, to integrate Mm -hmm. the schools. And as you say, it came to be interpreted or seen as a symbol of big government social engineering, but it wasn't created by big government liberals. It was created by conservative Southerners. Right. Busing was started by conservative Southerners as a means to keep the races separate. Like in these small towns all across the South, you know, blacks and whites lived in relative proximity and often in checkerboarded patterns. They just, everyone knew to stay in their place. Mm-hmm. It, it wasn't a geographical separation the way you have here in New York between like Harlem and, and, and downtown. So Whites would use buses and busing routes to to keep everyone moving in different directions and going to different schools. And so the first busing plans tried to simplify that and overcome the 15 years of white conservative opposition to, you know, make sense in order of, of an integrated school system in the South. The problem was is that, A, the implementation of those busing plans was felt to be executed by the same racist white school boards that had been trying to... Uh, forestall the problem, you know, or the solution for for so long. So that meant it was not going to be implemented in a way that was in blacks' best interest, but in sort of whites' best interest of say, okay, let's neutralize this problem and go away. Where do we have to put the black people to make the problem go away? Not what is best for this black child who needs a better education. Right. You had a great line of something like, buzzing wasn't done for the benefit of black kids' education, it was done. So that white people could avoid lawsuits. Right. You have to use the carrot and the stick to a certain extent, but we sort of wound up just using the stick in, in a way that was counterproductive. And then things really went off the rails when they tried to take busing to major northern cities where in order to reshuffle the deck to make up for these you know massive ghettos that were built by housing discrimination, which is the next chapter, they would have had to put tens of thousands of kids on hundreds of buses, sending them miles in every direction in ways that were completely, you know, logistically impossible and in ways that black families didn't want either. Right. You know, black families, I think the statistics are something like um, 90% of whites were opposed to busing, but almost 50% of blacks were too. 
once it went into action. Black Americans were in, in favor of integration in theory, but once it came down to, all right, your kid's going to be bused 50 miles across town into a hostile environment where you have no influence and in no way to protect them, then all of a sudden black people was like, well, wait, 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 wait. That's not what we asked for. We asked for the right to choose where we send our kids to school, not a program that just shuffles our kids all over the city. Right. So let's talk about how buzzing affected black students and teachers. You talked to black teachers at the high school where you went, Vestavia Hills High School in in near Birmingham, Alabama. When the integration order was made, Vestavia Hills met this 25% minority faculty quota that was imposed. But the order didn't say anything about maintaining that quota. So the number of black teachers dropped precipitously over the years. Right. As, as black teachers retired or decided not to come back or felt it was too hostile, they just weren't replaced. So after hitting this minority quota in about two years, over the next 20 years, it just gradually dwindled to a handful of black faculty. At the high school, there was only one teacher left by the 90s. You talked to at least one black teacher who'd been there for a while. Yeah. I mean, what was her experience? The background on it is that you know, this was a very, not wealthy, but you know, upper middle class, white suburb of, of wealthy, new money families. And the only black community that was anywhere close to this, this white suburb was this very poor rural community called Oxmoor. Um, where the kids were a lot of the kids were literally living in houses without running water uh, with with you know clabbered shacks and, and cinder block houses and so these kids were being bused from extreme poverty into one of the one of the richest parts of town and it was a huge class and cultural divide that a 12 year old kid just doesn't know how to navigate on his own and there was no guidance for them they were just being picked up and dropped off in this environment and so you know a lot of the teachers had to when the bus kids came to school, the, the black teachers, you know, took it upon themselves to take care of them. They had to take them down to the gym lockers and get them showers. And, and you know, they'd keep deodorant and toothbrush and toothpaste in their desk because the kids were coming from places without indoor plumbing. And it was a huge cultural shock. And so those kids, if they didn't have the proper parental support to deal with that environment, just sort of recoiled from it. They weren't involved in after-school activities. Or didn't get involved in after-school activities or anything like that. In fact, the whole phrase, quote, acting white, was really a product of desegregation. Um, when blacks were in their own schools, getting in, involved in student activities and, and high academic achievement wasn't seen as a, quote, white thing to do. Uh, it was only after integration caused that, and it turned out to have very uh, deleterious unintended side effects. And you talked about how, as a white student at that school, you never really saw any of those Oxmoor kids because of tracking. Yes, we had tracking, um, which is that all of the you know advanced kids are tracked into advanced classes and, and the general and remedial kids are, are put into their classes. And whether because of bias or because of just sort of an institutional uh, advantage that multiplies over time, if you come from an upper middle class white family and, and are academically talented, you're going to go towards that higher track. And then the black students were grouped towards the lower track, whether that was by inertia or, or deliberate design. It, it happened differently in different places. A lot of places it was by deliberate design. So we never saw the Oxmoor kids in, in the cafeteria. They had their own table. They were not in any of the advanced or college prep programs. I went back and looked, and there were almost, I think, maybe one black student in four years was part of the National Honor Society, as I point out in the book. We only had one black student in the Multicultural Awareness Club. <laughs> so that tells you a little bit about the environment of the school, sadly. And another thing that you point out is that in this 
push-pull of integration. There was this constant tension that kind of crops up in all of the sections of the book between, uh, as you say, should blacks fight for inclusive equality with whites or take white racism as a given and bolster their strength through ethnic solidarity. So, you know, one of the consequences of buzzing that got little attention in the white media, at least, was the effect on black schools. You talked about Parker right. High in, right. in Birmingham. Yeah, I mean, that that has been sort of the question you know, since the since the days of slavery, really, you know, we tended to look at race in terms of black versus white, and because as far as the white side of the conversation goes, that's all we really care about or know about. But really, since the days of Martin Delaney and Frederick Douglass, who Martin Delaney was the first black nationalist, uh, by the way, was sort of the precursor to Marcus Garvey and, and Malcolm X in terms of the whole uh, black nationalism and, and even the Back to Africa movements. You know, that's been the debate. They had Parker High School in Birmingham was a huge, very successful, as far as it goes, black high school. You know, they had unequal resources, but it was a healthy functioning community by which the black community took care of itself. And that was the big debate within the black community when integration came along, which is what what do you do about Parker High? Do we stay separate, which is somewhat disadvantaged, but in ways we can take care of ourselves? Or do we dismantle Parker? lose all the social capital and cultural capital that we have invested there for what is a very unsure fate mm. of being bust of Vestavia Hills. And in many ways, black America decided to do both, that it had to do both or tried to do both. And some would, ar- some would argue that that's moving forward on two fronts simultaneously in a healthy way. Others would argue that those are efforts that cancel each other out. Mm. And what happened was in Vestavia Hills is that other than the students who were bused in and a handful of kids who were maybe the students of black teachers, black people didn't move to Vestavia Hills because it was seen as a hostile place because holding on to the identity of, of the Parker High School and the black side of town and black churches – you know, they wanted to hold on to that while still moving forward uh, socioeconomically. So we only had, in my grade at least, there was only one black student who lived inside the city limits. Mm-hmm. And he was not the son of wealthy parents. His mother, he was a single son of a single mother. The wealthier black families chose to stay in, in the higher-end black neighborhoods because that's where they had their society built. Right. And so – it was somewhat futile that we just started shuffling kids all around the map without pausing to ask, okay, well, what do black people actually want? There's a lot of really interesting stuff about buzzing and about schools, uh, but just the last question I'll ask you about that particular section of the book is you went back during your reporting, you went and you visited with Mm -hmm. the kids who are going to your school now, and it did seem like things had changed. Yeah, I went back because what happened was is I found out that in 2007, just a few years ago, the busing order uh, was vacated. And they were, you know, Vestavia Hills was declared to have achieved unitary status, which means technically that it's not institutionally racist anymore, which dumbfounded me. I couldn't have imagined that that it had improved that much. Um, So I thought clearly there's been some sort of legal finagling to get out of this lawsuit. But I went back and it has changed considerably in part through the efforts of black families who have now chosen to move into that community and invest in that community uh, where they were reticent to before in the 1980s. And part of it has been, you know, a new administration of younger teachers, younger white teachers and younger black teachers who've, who've sort of come up with a different mentality and different mindset. And so, you know, in, in the 40 years that they had school busing there, the culture of the school never really changed. They just sort of brought black kids in and 
they went to school and then they went home again. And it's only been, ironically, since the end of court-ordered busing that the culture of the school has really changed since it has now become a voluntary shared effort between black families and, and white administrators to make a better school. And they've banned the Confederate flag and they have, you know, many, many more successful black students in engaged in activities and honor society and, and lots of programs. So... Um, and it seemed like the white kids had black friends. The white kids there today have more black friends than we were able to have back then because right. there were only like, you know, eight or nine black people to be friends with. Right. While things at that school have gotten a lot better, the racial divide between city and suburb and the socioeconomic divide between city and suburb have in some ways gotten worse. So that's sort of the larger story. Let's pause for a moment to give away some books. But first, I want to let you know that this month, The Afterword is sponsored by Audible.com. They're offering a free audiobook to any U.S. listener who signs up for a new 30-day free trial. Audible has more than 100,000 audiobooks available for download, as well as audio versions of newspapers and magazines. Membership also includes free access to the daily audio digest versions of The New York Times or The Wall Street Journal. Some of My Best Friends Are Black isn't available on Audible yet, but since the presidential campaign of Barack Obama was the event that started Tanner on the road to writing this book, I should mention that President Obama's memoir, Dreams From My Father, A Story of Race and Inheritance, is... And it won the 2005 Grammy for Best Spoken Word Album. To get your 30-day free trial, which will allow you to download Dreams From My Father or one of the other 100,000 audiobooks available on Audible, go to audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. If you use that URL, the afterword will get credit. audiblepodcast.com slash afterword. Now, Viking has very kindly given us four copies of Some of My Best Friends Are Black to give away to listeners, and Tana has signed them. If you would like one, send an email with the words Friends Giveaway in the subject line to slateafterward at gmail.com by 11.59pm Eastern Time on Friday, August 10th, 2012, and we'll choose four winners at random. If you've been lucky in one of our previous giveaways, please don't enter for at least three months after a win to give other listeners a chance. We'll contact the lucky responders so that we can get their postal address. And if you have any feedback about the podcast, please send it to the same address, slateafterward at gmail.com. I'm talking with Tana Colby, author of the new book, Some of My Best Friends Are Black. So I found the housing section fascinating and you convinced me that a guy called J.C. Nichols was responsible for everything from the southern election strategy of the late 20th century through the mortgage crisis of the early 21st century. So congratulations right. for that. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, so, he wasn't so much responsible for the whole thing. He's sort of he's like, well, I guess, the typhoid Mary. Exactly. He's sort of like the root. He set root, the ball in motion. He set the ball in motion. He was kind of the Steve Jobs of racism. So let's begin with the concept of white flight. There's this view that white flight and the suburbanization of the 20th century happened because black people moved in, so white people moved out. Now, your book made me realize that was a ridiculous and reductive explanation. Right. What really happened? Well, what really happened was that before 1900, you know, almost all of the black population of America was concentrated in, in the plantation south, and they were still in, you know, in those rural areas. And so in northern cities and in, west, in midwestern and western cities, they had never had to deal with large black populations. And so there were no majority black neighborhoods. I think at the time, uh, Kansas City was the 
you know, the city that I wrote about in the real estate chapter, yeah. uh, the average black resident lived in a place that uh, in a neighborhood that was uh, 13% black. But as more blacks moved to the north and midwest and the west as part of the Great Migration, whites in those areas did start to get scared. Like, what's going to happen? Is is there going to be a takeover? Are they here to compete for jobs? And so that white insecurity was able to be exploited by politicians and by businessmen who realized that if white people are scared of a rising tide of black neighbors, then all white real estate can be sold at a premium. And we, if we can create that product and get it to market, we'll make a lot of money. It's you know sort of a very classic American story. Right. So what happened is that you know in the South, Jim Crow was a legal institution, but as it went north and west, it turned into a product, and corporate interests were able to privatize it by creating white space. And J.C. Nichols was one of the pioneers of that. He didn't invent the idea of a racial covenant on a house, which a racial covenant says you know this deed may not be sold to black tenants or occupants. But he really did innovate their use in terms of making them self-renewing, self-perpetuating, not just attached to the deed of a house, but to attached to the plan of a whole neighborhood mm-hmm. so that it, they were that much harder to break. And the templates for racial covenants that he came up with in Kansas City, because he was sort of like the most influential industrialist in, in the real estate planning world, they became the gold standard for every real estate developer in the country. In fact, what I found when I went there, quite by coincidence, was that he was best friends with the real estate developer who planned the suburban area of Birmingham, Alabama, where I went to high school. And there's actually found a letter from the suburban planner of where I grew up asking this guy in Kansas City, hey, can I use your racial covenants for my neighborhood? And it's like, yeah, send them on over. And then as the 19... 20s came along and the National Association of Real Estate Boards, this cabal of real estate developers controlled it and they made it standard policy. And then in the 1930s, when the federal government got into the housing businesses to try and stimulate us out of the Great Depression, just like they go to you know insurance companies to help write medical legislation today, they went to the real estate companies and said, how should we plan our, our nation's real estate policy? And they said, well, the first thing you have to do is have all white neighborhoods and all black neighborhoods so that you can create stability between these, these different racial groups. So then it became federal policy that all neighborhoods had to be all white or all black in order to receive federal mortgage funds. It was just adopted wholesale by, by the Roosevelt administration. And it just became firmly baked into America's idea and, and also into black America's consciousness as well because you have within black communities this idea, this feeling that an all-black neighborhood is a good thing because they can control it and have, mm-hmm. you know, ownership of and it. And as you say, you know, it's in politicians' interest to maintain right. black politicians have an interest in keeping all black neighborhoods, and white Republican politicians have an interest in keeping their neighborhoods all black or all white as well. This very unnatural state of living became accepted as some kind of norm across both sides of the color line, and so. What happened was after it became federal policy, when the greatest generation came home and all these suburban developments started cropping up, it was actually illegal for uh, American GIs to use their GI Bill mortgages in anything but a racially restricted neighborhood. Black GIs theoretically should have been able to use their loans in all black neighborhoods, but even then they couldn't – a lot of them couldn't get access to those those monies. And so the nation just started to like solidify into these racially segregated chunks. And eventually, strangely enough, a middle-class white person with good credit and you wanted to live in something like a racially mixed area, you couldn't. Your mortgage application would be denied and you'd be told, like, go out and try the suburbs, Uh, which then left black communities totally open and vulnerable to predatory lending 
because they couldn't get access to legitimate mortgage instruments, which then 40 years later sort of you know, gave rise to the subprime mortgage industry. Uh, describe redlining, which uh, began, I think, with Mr. Nichols, right? And eventually, again, in this great morphing, became an, right. an insurance uh, just accepted policy. Well, redlining was when they came up with these federal mortgage guidelines, they said they, they basically come with a four-tiered system, you know, upper middle class or upper class white neighborhoods were the top. Working in middle class white neighborhoods were the second sort of ethnic you know, Jewish or, or Italian or any kind of ethnic working class community was rated third tier and black neighborhoods were rated the lowest. And by black neighborhoods, I mean any neighborhood with a black person in it right. would be considered a black neighborhood. And so this was originally designed to assess a level of risk, what interest rate should we set the mortgage mm-hmm. at. Only instead of being assigned just a riskier, higher rate of interest, black neighborhoods were assigned nothing at all. They were just – they were redlined because there was a color-coded system to go along with this and black neighborhoods were coded red. So on on every realtor's map, on every home insurer's map, on, on every bank lending map, black neighborhoods just were cordoned off in red and it just became a zone where no legal lending was allowed to take place, which is just – yeah. But then, when, as you point out, when the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968 and blockbusting and redlining were outlawed, it didn't solve the problems. And in fact, it maybe even made the problems worse. Right. Because, and again, with school busing, on the one hand, white conservatives were being so intransigent in trying to stop integration that the federal government had to come along and sort of, you know, shove it down everyone's throats to a certain extent. To, you know, that was, to a certain extent, um, unavoidable. But... A bunch of people sitting in Washington drawing up policies don't necessarily know what's going to work in terms of the marketplace and how people behave and react. So one thing they did with the 1968 Fair Housing Act was they said, quite brilliantly, that because blacks have been denied legal credit for so long that we should just make it mandatory that you have to give any black person a mortgage. Well, that just opened up a river of federal money for people to use and exploit black people because if you could sign any black person to any mortgage, no matter how predatory or unfair or whatever horrible conditions they were, then even if the black family defaulted on the mortgage, the federal government insured it. So mm-hmm. you could get your money back on it. And so – So you could just keep turning over properties. Lots of times, you know, black families would sign a mortgage for a house that had already been condemned. Because uh, they just put a fresh coat of paint on it. And so they would sign the mortgage and it would have some horrible balloon inflated payment note mm-hmm. attached to it. Mm-hmm. And then they'd get evicted within four or five months. And then the realtor would just turn the same house over again three or four times in a year. Uh, and it became a total scam. And so it was such a scam that the federal government then stepped in and said, all right, we're good. That was a disaster. We're just going to go back to to no mortgages again. <laughs> and then it became all the credit dried up. And so it was just absolute madness. The one thing we failed to do, we, we, we tried all these hugely ridiculous schemes to try and fix the problem. The one thing we actually didn't do was just give black individuals private property right protection that they could use to own a house and get their kids in good school. Like, we, we skipped that part. Right, right, right. That's what they did in this neighborhood that I profiled, 4963 in Kansas City. They were these, like, hardcore left-wing liberal professors at this university who lived in this little working-class neighborhood in Kansas City that was being overrun by blockbusting and, and, and all of these other problems. And so what what it was interesting to me is that you had a bunch of left-wing liberals step in and do what is eventually a very essentially a very small c conservative thing which mm-hmm. is just no big overarching program of saying black residents go here white residents go here and this is how you have to you know they just stepped up and and 
passed laws and zoning for their neighborhood that protected everyone's property rights, gave fair mortgage lending to anyone who wanted to live in the neighborhood, and it stabilized the market and created an integrated neighborhood. And by creating an integrated neighborhood, they then created an integrated neighborhood school. And those houses, you say, maintained their value. Right. In the 80s, it, it fell into disrepair because it had been overrun by the crack war, the war on drugs. And, you know, all the neighborhoods around it had fallen into disrepair. Mm-hmm. And so that sort of took them down with it. But it was better poised to come back. And now the neighborhood is, is, is coming back in a big way. Uh, we're running out of time. So I'm going to have to skip the workplace section, which is fascinating. It's about the advertising industry, which mm-hmm. we all know is fascinating. And right. Full of madmen. I want to skip though to the final section, which is about the the church. And since it's a personal book, you write about your own church, the Roman Catholic Church. Now it's predicated on the concept of one true church, indivisible, mm-hmm. which kind of created a an issue around segregating the races, right? Right. right. But you uh, were born and raised in Louisiana, whereas you say everyone is Catholic. For many years, black and white Louisianans worshipped together, but in the 1890s, New Orleans got its first Negro parish. Right. And after that, there was a, a movement to have kind of two churches in, in each right. parish, right? One for the blacks, one for right. the whites. Well, what happened was, you know, Louisiana quite famously, especially in New Orleans, was much more of a melting pot even, you know, before the end of slavery. Before, the end, before 1865, there were something like 11,000 free people of color living in New Orleans. And uh, under Reconstruction, it had actually become relative to its time, um, a progressive and integrated city where blacks enjoyed their own businesses and many had been elected to various you know, positions of power in the government. But as Jim Crow settled across the country and whites began to you know, not have to sit in rail cars with blacks, not have to sit in restaurants with blacks, you know, this, this idea of segregation became accepted. And so the facts that black and white Catholics had always gone to church together began to be questioned. There were angry whites who threatened their own pastors, you know, saying, kick the blacks out of the church. And this very well-meaning but sort of naive archbishop decided, well, if blacks are feeling threatened in in these mixed-race churches, maybe we should create a voluntary Mm. parish for them to go to if they want to. So they feel, you know, safer over there. And within 10 years, this voluntary parish became mandatory. Uh, and spread all over the state as every, town by town they went and just, you know, cut the parishes in half and, and divided them on opposite sides of the street. And you can still see it today because they're all still there. You drive through all these little towns all across southern Louisiana and the towns aren't big enough for one church. Like, you know, there's very right. little farming towns. Population-wise, it's not big enough for one church, yet there's always two. And they're usually right across the street from each other. And because there's a, you know, a resource and priest shortage in the Catholic Church right now, they usually sometimes they share a priest. Right. So the, the priest says mass at the black church and then goes across the street an hour later and says the exact same sermon at the white church. It's the craziest thing you've ever seen. And you talk about this place, uh, Grand Couteau, yes. where you describe the effort to mm-hmm. integrate the parish. Well, what happened there was in 1964, a black man tried to go to the white church and they beat him in church and threw him out. And that was a catalyst for the town in terms of realizing that they had to change. And the priests uh, in that community, so or over the next few years, came to the realization, you know, this is our fault. We're the, we're the moral authority in, in this community. We're the, we're the center of power in this town. And we're the ones who put this separate and unequal society in place. Right. And so it's our duty as the moral authority in this town to change that. And as long as we, we keep these separate parishes, 
we sit up here and we talk about, you know, not being prejudiced, well, you know, it's just not going to fly. So they started an effort to put the two churches back together again. And it was painstaking, and it took years. and in, 40 years from the sense of it. It took 40 years. They they made a good bit of progress in the early years, and then even among blacks and whites who, who wanted to integrate and wanted to try to, to, to have a better community, there was so much alienation and so much hostility and so much mistrust. And that, pain. And pain. Uh, the whole thing fell apart and sort of lay dormant through the 80s, and then it was sort of revived in the 90s by some priests and black community leaders who, who wanted to take back up the banner of, of fixing the churches. But again, flashing back to what we said about Parker and the black community that wanted to hold on to the cultural assets that, that it had under segregation, the black community wanted to keep its own church. And, and the part of the black community that wanted to keep their own church, that faction was led by the son of the man who was beaten in 1964. And he said quite reasonably that he wasn't going back to that church where they beat his father. Right. And I think that you know that's something that most of us would, would sympathize with. And that's kind of a metaphor for how black America feels about America as a whole, that they're not going to go and join that society that abuses them until that society has proven that it's changed, mm-hmm. which is a reasonable attitude to take, except that it is only by black people entering the larger society that the society changes and, and grows. As long as blacks stay in their own institutions and, and, and their own neighborhoods, they're not affecting any, any personal change uh, on, on, on people in white America. It's only through the act of contact or the fact of contact that we, we begin to understand and, and grow, which is what I experienced over the last four years of, of, of researching this book. So, you know, the journey of integrating these two, these two churches is on one level an institutional change of all the logistical things that had to be done to bring them together. But in many ways, it's just the, the, the story of this one man's journey, the son mm-hmm. of the man who was beaten, to accept and forgive. And to be shown some respect. I mean, and to know. be shown respect. That was his main thing was that it was a journey of him to learn how to forgive. And it was a journey of the whites in the church to prove that they were, they were worthy of forgiveness. Just one final question to you. How is working on the book uh, over the last four or five years? Mm-hmm. Has it changed you? Do you have black friends? Does it matter? I, I do have black friends. Um, and a lot of people have asked me, you know, that's been a lot of people's questions. Right. So, do you have any black friends now? And it's interesting the way people phrase it in, in a way that black people are still the object of the question <laughs> as opposed to the subject. Because we talk about, we generally, unfortunately, talk about black people as objects to be acted upon rather than agents of their own destiny. Part of it was about me going out and making black friends, but, uh-huh. but a lot of it was me becoming a person that a black person would choose to be friends with. <laughs> yes. Friendship is a mutual thing. Indeed. So, you know, I wasn't a racist when I started the book, and I'm not, I don't think, any more or less racist now. I'm just a more educated person. And the book itself is sort of an object lesson in what integration requires, which is really just learning and, and talking to people. You know, we, we put all of these very arch, complicated mm-hmm. theories of racial interaction on top of what people do, but it really is quite simple as you just educate yourself and go out and engage with other human beings. It's very difficult. It's very hard, but it's, mm-hmm. a very, it's very simple. That was Tana Colby, whose new book, Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America, is available in bookstores now. Thank you, Tana. Thank you, June. It's great to be back. If you have any comments about our discussion, send them to slateafterward at gmail.com. Our engineer was Ben Johnson. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Andy Bowers. Thanks for listening to The Afterword. For Slate.com, I'm June Thomas. June Thomas.